Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. I want to look at Mark uh, chapter 11. We're going to continue in our series called Witness. And we've been going through the whole book of Mark. And uh, we're nearing the end. There's several chapters left. But this is now the, the, the building up of the climax to what Jesus is going to do on the cross. So if you uh, can turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, we're going to look at verse 27 all the way through chapter 12, verse 12. And when I was like studying this passage, I was like, oh man, do, do you want like a nice sermon or a difficult sermon? Do you want like something that makes you feel loved or do you want something that like jolts you out of your seat? And I was like, wow, this is, this is going to be a hard and difficult passage, not only to preach, but to, to hear and to receive. And when I was going over this, and I, I just felt a little bit uh, led to say, God, I just, I just really want to believe that every single one of us are here, are here for a reason, that God is going to speak to us something to plant that seed in our hearts so that we could be open to whatever challenge that God has for us. Because if you look at the next two chapters, it is not a happy passage. It is not an encouraging passage. It is not an, an easy thing to stay or to share or to read. Now, when we look at this passage, the first thing that comes to mind is this whole topic of authority. And many of us, if we were to think about Christianity and authority, you know, there's, there's a conflict that we wrestle with in our lives. How many of us, we love the verse that talks about how if the sun sets you free, you are free in? Free indeed. We all love that, right? We all want to be free. Right? I want to fly like a dove, like a bird, and, you know, be like, Wee! you know, and of course, that's, that's the Christian life. We ought to be free. We ought to be living this joyful, free Christian life, but then we struggle with other passages that you say you ought to suffer. You ought to live for Jesus' kingdom. You ought to give up your whole life, and many of us, we struggle with that tension because on one side, Jesus tells us that we're going to be free. We're going to be free and live free and joyful lives, and on the other side, Jesus says, but you're going to suffer. You're going to live uh, in Jesus' kingdom as his servant for his purposes, not your own. The question is, how are these in any way compatible? How can you be free on one side, but totally as a servant, as a soldier on the other? And it's so interesting because Mark, from the beginning of the passage, from the whole beginning of the book, he's been telling us how Jesus is the son of God. He is ushering in a kingdom. He's a king who has come to reign and dominate over our lives. And, and there's so many voices and authorities that are clamoring for our attention. And, and to really see God as our authority, but yet experience his freedom seems, seems so difficult. Like how, how is it going to work? So the question is, is God's authority really good or is it not so good? Should, should I be free from all things or should I submit myself as God's servant? Interesting thing um, this is, this is a guy, his name is John Locke. He's not in any way a Christian. He could have been a Christian, but he really was famous for being a philosopher and a physician. His name is John Locke. And he was regarded as one of the most influential thought leaders on the Enlightenment. And if you, any of you know the Enlightenment, it's pretty much the whole renaissance, the whole system of thought that has ushered into our day and age. Like, if you think about uh, science and all that kind of stuff, it came from the Enlightenment. All the things that we study, engineering, all this came from the Enlightenment. The Industrial Revolution came from the Enlightenment. So this guy was a really influential, very top thought leader in his day and age. 
And uh, he wrote this about authority and freedom. This is what he wrote. He says, the end of law is not to abolish or to restrain, but to preserve and enlarge freedom. For in all the states of created being, ca beings capable of laws, where there is no law, there is no freedom. Where there is no law, there is no freedom. This is someone who isn't known for being Christian. I don't, I don't know exactly what his faith background is. But one thing that he does, he, he, he balances this tension between authority and freedom in a way that many of us, we don't want to deal with. We don't want to wrestle with. Especially in our generation, we're all about freedom. We're all about making our own choices. We're all about, you know, I am my own independent person. As an independent person, I get to make whatever choices I want. And whatever authority I have, parents, church, government, I, I eschew that authority. I rebel against that authority because that authority has no say over my own life. But how much more as Christians should we consider what this authority really means, what it really comes out to be? It just says like, something, I, don't know, I don't know why I was thinking about this, but recently I went to the doctor and you know, anytime you go to the doctor, it's usually bad news. And I realized uh, over the last couple weeks after I got my blood test, my doctor said, you know, called me and said, I have some bad news for you. Uh, most of your things are normal, but you have high cholesterol. I was like, oh, man. Oh, no. Like, and and I, I, I was like cringing because of, well, what did I do? And he's like, it's probably something you ate. And it's probably your diet. And I was like, no, I thought I was free to eat whatever I want. I thought I had good genetics. I thought I had all these things because... You know, like all my life I had good cholesterol. <laughs> and, my and my brother had really bad cholesterol for a long time. I was like, yes, I have good genes and I'm good. And, I, and there was something in me like, I, I, I am willing to put myself now, my, now I'm eating oatmeal for breakfast. I'm not eating fried foods. Like I'm trying not to eat out as much as I can. And my wife is like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and I'm willingly putting myself under all these restrictions so that what? I could be free to live a healthy life. I mean, it's just a silly example, but so many of us, we, 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 we struggle with this tension of can I really be free? But in everyday life, we realize we can't really be free without certain rules or restrictions within our lives. So instead of giving us a one thing, I'll give us a one question at the end. But as we look at this passage, the first thing I wanted to talk about is how we either submit to God's authority or we're enslaved to human authority. We either submit to God's authority or we're enslaved to human authority. Let's, let's look at Mark chapter 11. We're going to read verses 27 to 33. It says this, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking the temple, the chief priests and scribes and elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed with one another, saying, If we say, from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say, from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now I wanted to give some context because uh, we've covered a lot of ground in the book of Mark, and I think it's really, really important to know what was Mark saying from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 10 for us to understand what is he trying to say here in chapter 11 and 12. If you remember, or if you look in verse 27, it says they came 
again to Jerusalem. So if you remember from chapter 11, they had this back and forth between Jerusalem and Bethany. And now this is the third time that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. The two previous times was in uh, verse 11 and chapter 11 and verse 15. The verses are up there. I'm not going to read it. But this is now the third time that Jesus comes to Jerusalem. Now, why does he say that? Now, Mark is trying to say this is a continuation. Last chapter that we read from verses 1 to, 27, uh, verses 1 to 26 in chapter 11, this is now a continuation. In fact, this is the climax. This is the conclusion of what Mark is trying to say. And in many ways, coming into Jerusalem and coming into the temple, Mark really negatively portrays the temple. He, he doesn't see the temple in a good light. The temple was supposed to be this place of God's presence. It was supposed to be a place of prayer. But remember in verse uh, 17 in Mark 11, he says what? And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And, and, and uh, sorry, not John. Mark, through Jesus, he's saying that you have been deceitful. Remember the fig tree from last week? He, he, he cursed this fig tree, and this is the only time that Jesus curses anything. And it's kind of scary. Like, why would he, an innocent fig tree, like, what's wrong? It didn't do anything. But he's saying, just like the fig tree was supposed to bear fruit, but didn't have fruit, so you, as the temple and as the chief priests and leaders, you were supposed to bear fruit through prayer and through honoring God, but you, you have not. And so far, Jesus has only indirectly confronted them. Yeah, you know, I mean, throwing over tables and driving out money changers seems very confrontational. But he, up to this point, he has not directly confronted the leaders and the chief priests of Israel. And now, in this chapter, he will. And this is the confrontation that he had. This is the climax of the confrontation. And the question for us, as we think about we can only serve either God's authority or human authority, is, is Jesus advocating for a free freedom where we just, we do whatever we want, Jesus is rebelling against authority, or is he reinforcing some other kind of authority? And that's the question for us. There are three things that we learn about authority. There are three things. The first is that two authorities cannot exist simultaneously. You cannot have two kings in a kingdom. You cannot. Any of you who watch Game of Thrones, you know that's not going to be possible. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And he, he, he outlines this principle in Matthew, but in Mark we see that he says this. The, the chief priest come to him and says, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority? And if we read it in one way, it can be like, Oh, Jesus, like, oh, we just, we're just curious, like, Oh, who, who, who allowed you to do these things? But I don't think that's how really they're coming at it. They're the authority of the temple. The chief priests, they're the ones who come up with all the laws. They're the ones who do all the sacrifices. They're the ones who are in charge of all the money changers. They benefit from that system. And they're coming up to Jesus, and Jesus pretty much just threw out their whole system with all the money changers and the temple and all that kind of stuff. And they're confronting him. They're saying, Jesus, who do you think you are? Jesus, how, who gave you this authority to do that? You have no right. They're confronting them. They're saying, we are the authority, not you. Where does your authority come from? And uh, it, it's just hilarious how easily this comes out in parenting. Like, those of you who are parents, how many of you know 
that either your child is your authority or you're the authority of the child. It cannot be both, okay, right? Either your child runs the household or you do. And oftentimes in our household, it is Noah, okay? It is Noah. Like recently, we were at a, a wedding yesterday, and like, you know, we're like, Noah, you got to behave. You got to, all your main job is to walk down the aisle. And he, praise the Lord, he did the job well, all right? Praise the Lord, he did the job well. But after that, he became the authority. You know, afterward, he was like, I'm going to walk upstairs and downstairs and then upstairs and then downstairs. And like, we're like, no, you're going to sit in your stroll. And he was like, no! And we're like, okay, okay, <laughs> right? Like, you just get, you, this is not possible to control him. So he's the authority. And there's no way in our household that both Noah and us can be the authority. And, you know, unfortunately, we give in oftentimes. It just doesn't work. And we'll clash. And I've tried many times, and I've lost many times. <laughs> and, and it's so interesting that I'm like, man, this is exactly about the Christian life. That oftentimes, like, we, we want to have Christianity as our quote-unquote authority, but we also want to be authority at the same time. Like, we want to have both, and they cannot exist at the same time. They, they're not compatible. Jesus says it here. You know, you cannot, be, you cannot have God and money. You cannot have two kings at the same time. And some of us are like, well, they can kind of coexist, you know, as long as things are okay. Well, until there's a conflict. Well, you know, no, there hasn't been really many conflicts in my life between Christianity and all these other things that I'm interested in. Then I want to ask you, what kind of God, what kind of Christianity are you living? What kind of Christianity have you subscribed to? What Bible have you lived out? Well, yeah, no, I can live out my life and do all the things that I want to do. Well, what does God say that you ought to use your time for? What is his commandment? What does he say we ought to be doing with our whole life? What is the center of our lives? What's our mission? He says to go make disciples of all nations. Are you making disciples? Oh, I go to church. Are you making disciples? Oh, I kind of participate in life. Are you making disciples? You can't get out of that. There's going to be a conflict somewhere. Oh, I want to, I want to do, you know, this. I, I really want to invest in working out because I want to be healthy. I want to get big muscles, and I want to do all this. Kind of, or I want to do really excellent. I want to excel in my studies, and I want to get good grades. That, that's, none of those things are wrong. They're great. But the problem is when they come into conflict, and I was challenging the leaders yesterday, and I, I think I was just a little bit passionate. <laughs> and I was challenging, like, when's the last time you spent 10 minutes in prayer? When's the last time? You spend so much time studying and working out and doing all the things your boss wants you to. Eating the great foods. I heard it's restaurant week in Hong Kong. Anyone? All right. Good food. You spend so much time doing research on the best restaurants to eat. You do all these things, but you cannot spend 10 minutes with God in prayer. Now, who is your authority? It's not Jesus. It ain't God. Let's not even talk about Easter and reaching out. How many of us think about Easter and traveling and doing all this kind of stuff when there's so many people on this earth dying without knowing God? How many of you know what's going on in Turkey? How many people died? How many of you know what's going on in the Ukraine war? How many of you know what's going on and, you know, the missions team just went to Thailand and they went to the border of Myanmar? That conflict's still going on. 
And how many of us, we, we, we live our lives as if God doesn't exist and he doesn't care about the laws and we think that we're living out Christianity when he's like, no, there are so many commands that you have not even scratched the surface on. And there's no way that you can say that God is your king. You either have one master or the other. You cannot have both. The second thing we learn about authority is the bondage of human authority. The chief priests and elders and scribes, their response really reveals their authority, who their authority is. It's funny because Jesus, he turns the table on them, remember, and he says, you know, um, was the authority of John, was it from heaven or from man? And, you know, how the chief priests respond really reveals what their authority is, right? What do they say? He says, uh, they discuss with one another. So after Jesus answers, they have a little huddle group time. He's like, give us five more, ten more minutes. We need, we're not done sharing yet, all right? And, and they're like, oh, if we say from heaven, you say, why didn't you believe him? And he says, but if we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So what are they saying? What is, what's happening here? Either they say from heaven, and they're exposed in their hypocrisy, right? Because they're, they're not submitting to John. Or they go against the people, and they're afraid of the people, because they're like, well, the people think this way, and then we can't go against the people, because if we don't have the people, then we don't have power. So what's being exposed? What's being exposed is that the chief priests really don't have any authority of their own. They're really submitted to human authority. They're afraid on both sides. On one side, they're afraid of being exposed by John the Baptist. On the other side, they're afraid of what? Being exposed by the people. It's so ironic, and it's so ironic that when we're confronted with Jesus' authority, our human authority really comes out. What we really submit to really comes out. Like, I was, uh, I mean, this, is, this has been a, I was like thinking about, oh, what, what illustration can I share from this? I'm like, man, there's too many. Because this is exactly the same thing that happens every single time I have to make a significant decision that requires a step of faith. It was when I was thinking about getting baptized, when I was thinking about going on a missions project, when I was thinking about staying in the college town that I graduated to serve the church, and then when I was thinking about praying about coming to Hong Kong. Like, every single time I was making these decisions, you know what the first things that crossed my mind were? Like, oh, what are my parents going to think? And then it was not only what are my parents going to think, it became what are my friends going to think? And then not only my friends going to think, but then when I started working, what are my colleagues going to think? What's, what's going to happen to my career? And then after that, it became, oh, what are the church leaders going to think? What's my LCG? What's my life group leader going to think? What is the pastor going to think? The pastor doesn't think about you that much, okay? So... Let's get real. But I was like, I was afraid. And like, I would, I would waver back and forth between each decision. Should I get baptized or should I not? Should I go on this missions project or should I not? Should I go to Hong Kong or should I, should I not? And whichever side I landed on, I realized that I was so bound by my own insecurities and fears of what other people thought about me. On this side of doing it, I was like, oh, like, oh no, what if my parents, you know, disown me? What if they say bad of me? What if my relationship cut off? And on the other side of, like, not doing it, the, oh, what are the church leaders going to think of me? What are my colleagues going to think of me? What, are my, what is my LCG going to think of me? And I realized, like, I'm stuck in the middle. And, and on both sides, I am bound by human authority. I'm completely swayed. I'm completely controlled by what other people think. And I think so many of us are in the same place. And not once or not in any of that place are we saying, what does God think? 
what does God really think about this? What is God really wanting me to do? Let me give some examples. Do not raise your hand. Please do not, even as a joke, do not raise your hand. How many of you struggle with which political side, political, okay, which political group that you agree with most in Hong Kong? You mean struggle with that? I mean, sometimes in an international church, you know, we're like, oh, who cares? Some of us, we really struggle with this. And we feel like we got to take sides. One side or the other, yellow or blue. But where is God in that? Where, where, since when was God part of a political persuasion? Some of us were like, democracy. But where is God in democracy? How about uh, family versus church? How many of you, don't raise your hand again, how many of you had to make a decision where it seems it was like family against church? And on one side, you felt like, oh, if I make this decision, my family is going to get hurt and disown me. On the other side, if I make this decision, then church is going to dis be disappointed. Both are wrong. Come on. God is your authority. You shouldn't be making decisions purely for your family, nor should you be making decisions out of what people think in the church. Boss, friends, how many of you stayed a little bit too long in the office because you're afraid of what your boss is going to say? Or how many of you done some crazy stuff because of what your friends wanted you to do? But where in that is God? Where in that is the Holy Spirit? No matter where we're at, we're inevitably going to be bound to some kind of human authority in our lives. And the challenge is, can we make everything about God rather than what other people think or what we think ourselves? Third thing that we notice as a result of this discussion on authority is the difficulty of Jesus' authority. The difficulty of Jesus' authority. John is brought up again. Jesus brings John into the equation. Like, What does John have to do with this? I think Jesus is really smart. Because not only is he putting the, Pharise or the chief priests and the scribes and the elders into a really hard place, he's kind of backing them into a corner. But what is he really trying to say? He's alluding to the fact that John previously in Mark 6, uh, verses 14 to 29, he was foreshadowing, sorry, he was alluding to, now Jesus is talking about John, but what he was alluding to was when Jesus had found out that John was beheaded. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 14 to 19, he was beheaded, foreshadowing what Jesus and his disciples would face. Because what? John was a prototype of Jesus. And so Jesus, by invoking John, what is he saying? He's saying, if you submit to my authority, you're going to go through the same things that John the Baptist went through. You're going to suffer. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be challenged. You're going to go through a really difficult life. And that is the consequence of submitting to my authority. And and interestingly, on the other side, Jesus is completely free at the same time. Because when he's confronted by the priests, he says, you know, if, if the chief priests really were the authority and Jesus submitted to them, what, what would Jesus do? He'd probably answer the question first. At the end, end of the day, he says, neither will I answer your question. So who's really authority? It's Jesus. And I think the difficulty of Jesus' authority is that he really is the true and ultimate authority 
but then actually submitting to his authority will be so hard for us, and we don't like it, and we struggle with it, and we feel challenged by it, and we want, want to run away from it, and we don't want to deal with it. George Whitefield, in his sermon, The Method of Grace, this is what he said, and I think it's really, man, it's really challenging. It says this, I am persuaded that the devil believes more of the Bible than most of us do. He believes the divinity of Jesus Christ that is more than many that call themselves Christians do. Nay, he believes and trembles, and that is more than thousands among us do. I, I really, I'm scared of that quote. And, and I pray that it would shake some of us up. That, man, the, the, the spirits and the other, the angels, even Satan knows and confesses that Jesus is the divine God. And he trembles, but he rebels. But he knows so much more that Jesus is the divine. Jesus is the Son of God. And how many of us, we don't believe that. We don't actually accept. We don't actually re receive that. And why? Why don't we do that? It's because we don't want to live the life that Jesus prescribed us to live. We would much rather have our own kingdom. We would much rather being our, be our own king or queen of our own life. It's because of the difficulty of Jesus' life, the suffering that we have to entail, the, 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 the denial of self, the losing our lives that we don't want to face, that we totally disregard that this is who really got it. Wouldn't it be nice if we could be our own authority and have God as our pet? Oh, Jesus, so cuddly. Nice guy. Oh, yeah, Jesus, you love me, and I, I only need you when I'm insecure. I only need you when I struggle with things that I can't handle. I only need you when I'm going through a hard time, and then once I'm in control of my life, I can live however I want. We want Jesus as a therapeutic God. But Jesus is not a therapeutic God. He is the Holy One of God, the righteous one, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, he demands our whole allegiance. And that's why we either submit to God's authority or we're enslaved, we're in bondage to human authority. And it's our choice. It really is our choice. Every single day, it's our choice. The question is, what choice are you going to make? Second point is that God warns those who become their own authority. God warns those who become their authority. We're going to read the rest of Mark 12, 1 to 12. It says this, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them to another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, 
but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is a really interesting parable because um, Jesus has not told a parable since Mark chapter 7, five chapters prior to this. And even that parable in chapter 7 was a really short, just kind of like an aside. The main part where he told all these parables was chapter 4. So for almost uh, seven, eight chapters, Jesus has not told any parables of significance. Chapter 4, he told all these parables, and usually when he tells parables, it's because he's trying to communicate something to a group of people where most of them won't understand. And so he tells this parable now in a very interesting way to get across a very particular point. Now, why is he telling this parable? This parable, the first reason is because it's a parallel of the vineyard to Jewish history. The, the vineyard, the whole exposition of the vineyard, it's a parallel to Jewish history. So if, if you were a chief priest, if you were a scribe, if you were elder, and you were, you were studied in the history of Israeli history, then you would have known all the historical things, and you would have known that this vineyard was exactly what Israel went through. The first aspect of it is it was an allusion to Jerusalem and the temple. Like in verse 12, he talks about planting a vineyard. He put a fence around it. He dug a pit for the wine press. He built a tower and he leased it to tenants. What is that? It's a city, right? Building walls around it, digging a wine press for production of stuff, and then building towers, watchtowers around the wall. What? What is that? Those are the walls of Jerusalem, or it could be the walls of the temple. And it was an allusion to Jerusalem and the temple. And the tenant farmers are what? The Israelites. And so if you think about this whole, this whole vineyard, he's saying this is all the way from Exodus to Joshua. When the Israelites, what were they doing? They went from Egypt all the way into the promised land. They built their kingdom and then landed in Jerusalem. And they were supposed to take care of it. They were supposed to take care of this place that the, the, the vineyard grower, the vineyard owner, created for them, the promised land that was given to them. The second one was it's a continuation of the fig tree metaphor that we saw previously in chapter 11. Those of you who remember the fig tree, remember Jesus saw the fig tree, and then when he saw it, he said, I expect some fruit to come out of it. What does he say in this verse 2? It says, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So he was looking at it and saying, I expect some fruit to come out of those of you who are there in the vineyard. And what was that? Israel should have borne some fruit. When they were in the promised land, when they were in Jerusalem, they should have borne some fruit. They should have provided that fruit back as worship, as offering to God. And what was that in Israel's history? It was all the way from Judges to Samuel. Because what? They found no fruit. They didn't get the fruit that he wanted. And what happened all the way through Judges, all the way through First and Second Samuel? They were rebelling against God. They didn't give him the fruit. They, everyone lived the way that they wanted to. They didn't worship and honor God. And then you have the third reference, a reference to the history of the Israelites. All the way from kings to prophets. He talks about how he sent one servant, and then he sent another servant, and they killed some, they beat some, they did all these things that they wanted to, they sent them away. And what was this a history of? History of kings, and then all the way through the prophets, right? Prophet Jeremiah that they imprisoned. Prophets that they killed, prophets that they, you know, totally disregarded. And he's saying this vineyard parable is pretty much a history, a history of everything that Israel went through. And why is he saying that? Why, why is he using this vineyard parable to say this is your history? He's saying all of these things are accurate. They depict the past, and they're 
they're reinforcing what is true, what happened, what happened in the past. Because what happened after they did all these things, they went into exile into Babylon. And he's saying, if these things are true, whatever's I'm going to say in this parable, whatever comes next is going to be true too. If these are true of Israel in the history, in the past, and this mirrors the vineyard, then whatever comes next in the vineyard story is going to be true for the future. And now this is the prediction of the vineyard as a warning for the future. And this is the part that doesn't mirror Israel's past, is when he starts talking about the son. Remember, he says he still had one other. He had a beloved son. He sent to them, saying, they will respect my son. And those tenants said, this is the heir. Let us kill him. And then they killed him, and they threw him out. And that part hasn't ha happened yet. Many of us know that that probably alludes to Jesus when they're going to crucify him. And he's saying, that's exactly what's going to happen. And not only that's going to happen, but what's going to happen? He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. If I were the chief priest, if I were the scribes, if I were the elders, I would be terrified. I would be terrified. What does it mean for the owner of the vineyard to come and to kill and to throw them out of the vineyard? What does that mean? And what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us today? It reinforces that Jesus, he's the real authority. He's the vineyard owner. He still has ultimate authority. And no matter how many servants that they kill, no matter if they kill their son, he can still take these wicked tenant farmers and throw them out and kill them. And this is a stark warning that those who reject his authority are going to face the consequences. When I share this, I'm not meaning to cause some of us to really question your faith. But I do want to preach scripture and explain to us that we can't sit and enjoy our Christian life and think that there's nothing that's going to happen if we disobey God. Matthew 7, verse 21 to 23, he says, this is what Jesus is saying. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He's going to throw us out. And that's a scary truth. Some of us, we, 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 we've gone to church our whole lives. And we think, oh, yeah, as long as I go to church, I go to life group, you know, I, I go to all the meetings, I kind of do X, Y, and Z, I'm good. I'm good. I still live my own life. I have Jesus as my pet over here. And I'm good. And Jesus is saying, heck no, no way. He's saying, you could, you could have all the forms of Christianity, you could pretend like you're really on board with God's kingdom. You could pretend like Jesus is your king and say the quote-unquote right prayers, but live your life for yourself, and then you will bear the fruit of the consequences of that. And I don't think he's doing it to, to guilt us. He's not trying to inspire us with fear. He's just saying this is the truth, that if you set yourself up as king of your own life, then you will be king of your own life, and you will reap the consequences of being king of your own life. And only and only if Jesus is king of your life will Jesus say, I know you, I love you, and I'm going to be with you for the rest of your life. And I think really we have to pause and say, who is king in my life? 
is Jesus really king of my life or am I the king of my life? Because I could get thrown out. And there's, a, there's another extreme where some of us were so afraid and we're so fearful and we're so like paralyzed. We're like, oh my God, like everything that I do, am I, you know, and you get paralyzed and you're not able to do anything because you're doing everything out of fear. Because, and, and the ironic thing is that kind of insecure way of looking at salvation where you're always afraid, you always feel like you got to do the right thing and you're not sure if he's going to accept you or not. That is also your own kingdom, right? That's your own righteousness. That's you, that's you thinking that, oh, I got to be good enough. I got to obey God strong enough. I got to be disciplined enough to, so that God could accept me. And who is that all about? What's your kingdom about? It's still you. It's still your ability. It's still your own strength. It's still your own your own steps of being able to say, I could be good enough as a Christian. God is not your king. And so those are, you know, the first mindset or the first thought is like, oh, but if I live in fear every single day, that, that's a terrible way to live. God doesn't want you to live that way either. But if you live that way, then it shows that you're really about self-righteousness. You're really about your works and how, you, how well you could be a Christian. When God says, your king, my kingdom is really about living by faith every single day that Jesus is the Son of God. He has died for us. He's been crucified for our sins. He's risen again on the third day. He's ascended into heaven. He reigns as king. And in light of that truth, I live every single day. My life is for him. And it's so ironic. It's so ironic that in verse 12, I believe, verse 12 at the very end, when, remember I said, Jesus usually tells parables so that there's a certain group of people that doesn't get it. Most people don't get it. Only a small group of people, even the disciples don't get it. But this is the one time in the parables that the, the chief priests and the Pharisees, what? They perceived that he had told the parable against them. They got it. They got the parable. And this is the challenge for us, that we will not listen to this message or this challenge, or this warning, perceive it, and understand it, and go our way, and continue to fear, and continue to live our own lives, and continue to allow ourselves and other people to be king of our lives. But we would say, God, no, you are our king. You are our Lord. A.W. Tozer, in The Pursuit of God, he says this. He says, much of our difficulty as seeking Christians stems for our unwillingness to take God as he is and adjust our lives accordingly. We insist upon trying to modify him and bring him near to our own image. May that not be true of us. May we not try to mold and manipulate God to be near and near to ourselves and what we want from life. But may we say, God, no, my life may it be molded more and more toward your image, toward your kingdom, to your lifestyle. Humbling myself and recognizing that I cannot do anything. I cannot really be free unless I submit to you as my ultimate authority. I think many of us can come away very discouraged from this kind of message. Either you're like, oh man, I, I don't know if I could really live out this Christian life. Get really discouraged and really self-focused. Others of us could get really self-righteous. Like, okay, let's do it again. More Jesus, you know, more soap, more Bible, you know, and go the complete opposite way. And then we find out that we're very self-righteous and works-oriented and we get really discouraged again. And Jesus doesn't leave us with that. 
he quoted the Old Testament. He quoted Psalm 18, where he says, the stone of the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing marvelous in our eyes. And I think he did it for a very specific purpose. And he was trying to communicate a third way. It says, it's not about fearing and being insecure, nor is it about you doing on your own really well and obeying God with your own strength. There's a third way. And I want to read this psalm because he quotes that psalm. He quotes that two lines because he's referring to Jesus as the cornerstone. But as soon as he quotes Psalm 18, the chief priests and the scribes, they would have known what the context of that psalm was. They would have known exactly what the psalm was trying to say. And Jesus is alluding to the fact that this is what's going to happen when you see Jesus as your ultimate authority. I'm going to read Psalm 118, verse 17 to 24. It says this, I shall not die, but I shall live. Recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made, and let us rejoice and be glad in it. I don't know if you caught that. But he's saying the reason why Jesus became the cornerstone, the one that the builders rejected, is why? So he could provide salvation. So he could provide hope. And yes, we are challenged and we are warned. And why are we warned? And why has he come so harshly and directly against these people? Why? He's warning them not because he wants to cast them away, but because he wants them to come to know him. That's why he gives us a warning. That's why he's saying, alert, blinking, right? Any of you see like fire alarms and you sit in your dorm, you sit in your place, and you're like, oh, fire alarm. Oh, okay, let me just sit here. Any of you have done that, right? You hear a fire alarm, you just go, okay, all right, just pass it by, keep doing my work. No, it's because there's a fire. Warning, warning, get out of the building. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, the Lord has disciplined me severely. There's consequences. There's things in my life. He's trying to get my attention and his warning that's coming about me being the king of my life is warning, warning, because he knows that's going to be bad news. And he's saying, there is an alternative. I'm warning because I want you to have life. I want you to enjoy life. I want you to be with me for the rest of your lives. If you would submit your whole life to me, you could have life. And it's amazing that God would do such a thing, that he would give his whole life, that he would warn us to say, yeah, you've rejected me as a cornerstone, and indeed, Jesus was rejected. And how was he rejected? He was crucified. He was tortured. He was just completely destroyed, suffered, bled for us. Why? So it would be a warning for us, so that that warning could turn us back to him. And as we put our trust and our faith in him, what does it result in? It gives us life. And so I just have one question as a response. Is who is your authority and how will you respond to Jesus' warning? Who is your authority and how will you respond to Jesus' warning? Every single one of us has a choice. Every single one of us. Whether you consider yourself a Christian or not. Every single one of us has a choice every single day to ask ourselves, who is my authority and how will I respond to Jesus' warning? I'm going to give us just a couple next steps. The first one is identify what worldly authority you answer to. All of us, we do. 
all of us have some kind of worldly authority that we respond to, that we, that we align our whole lives under. Could be approval of some group of people, could be some sort of control or power that you desire, could be some sort of comfort that you're holding on to. We all have something. You have to identify it. You have to know what it is. If you don't even know what it is, there's no way you can say, I reject that. Know what it is. Reflect through some things. I, I heard so many of us, we enjoyed One Desire Fast, and like, you know, even though there was a whole second acronym called the Jesus acronym, all I heard was the six S's, right? Solitude and still. It wasn't even all the six S's. It was just solitude and stillness. Everyone loved that, right? Silence, solitude, and stillness. When's the last time you spent some solitude time and stillness after the retreat? Oh, I forgot about that. Can you just spend 10 minutes a day just with him? Nothing else. Him is your king. And as he's doing that, he's going to what? Help you identify some of those other authorities that you submit yourself to every single day. Second thing is invite Jesus to be your authority instead. Jesus will not force himself upon you. He will never force you to make a decision like that. He wants your heart. So in those times, you have the ability to say, God, like, Lord, I see the consequences. I see the mess I've made in my life. I've seen all the ways that this is going to lead to a dead end. God, I want you as my, as my everything. Only you can do that. Only you can say, God, man, you, you, you've done so much good in my life that all I want to do is I want to serve you now. Now, now instead, of, instead of, oh, I have to do this mission project, I get to do this mission project. Instead of, oh, I have to wake up at 7 a.m. to come and set up the cameras and the equipment, I get to do it. Instead of, oh, my God, I have to bring, I have to serve for life group, I get to serve for life group. And you can add whatever other examples you want in there for yourself. And who are you doing it for? You get to do it for Jesus, not for other people, not for yourself. You do it for Jesus. And last thing is iterate. And those of you who are programming geeks, you're probably like that. Repeat. For loop. <laughs> do it over and over and over and over and over and over again. Do it over again and do it over again. Why? Because our hearts are idle factories. Our hearts are human authority factories. We keep on producing more and more every single day. Something else comes up, you get triggered again. Something else comes up, you get triggered again. And what happened? The next day and the next day and the next day. And you're like, oh, why is this? Well, it's because God wants us to go through this process of making him king of our lives every single day. His mercies are new every single morning. And it's a daily struggle, it's a daily battle, but it's one so worth fighting for. So iterate. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.